0: So we're in John 17 again, but before we go there, who do these words remind you of? All for one and one for all. The three musketeers, yeah? Probably their most famous slogan, although it's probably been used by lots of other people since. And maybe the musketeer stole it from someone who said it before them, I don't know. Um, but it's an example of one of the many many expressions and definitions and sayings about unity which i think is probably one of the most written about and sought after things ever but what is it what is unity how can we achieve it what's the purpose of unity and why should we seek after it I guess if you wanted to um, use our Bibles to answer that, uh, we could have a, a, a good stab at each of those questions. Um, maybe by going to Ecclesiastes 4 verse 9. You know, if you wanted to go somewhere a little bit off, um, off-piste um, and not go to John chapter 17. Uh, Ecclesiastes 4 verse 9 says, two are better than one because they have a good return for their labor. If either of them falls down, one can help the other up. You might go there because that type of cooperation usually requires some degree of unity, a friendship or mutual understanding, uh, a willingness to help each other and work together. And to achieve that, as many employers and project managers and team leaders and so on, as many people will know, it isn't always easy and when people don't agree on what should be done or uh, how it should be done or if they have different priorities and especially if (laughs) if they don't like each other or respect each other uh, very much then everything becomes a lot more difficult and you might not get cooperation and you probably won't have unity so if we can call that type of cooperation uh, an expression of some form of unity, can we say that any lack of cooperation is an example of disunity? Probably. But I think it's, it's more complicated than that. What about, say, an army platoon? The soldiers might not like each other. They might not agree with the mission. They might not respect their commanding officer very much, but they still follow their orders anyway. And likewise, people in other settings can be coerced or pressurized in one way or another to behave in such a way that looks like unity. But maybe it isn't. Now, some might think it doesn't matter as long as there's no obvious dissent and the job gets done. But eventually, as Jesus said in Luke chapter 11, a house divided against itself will fall. So. A state of real, genuine unity isn't just beneficial, it can be critical to the survival of any group, or community, or family, or friendship, or church, or community of churches. And the reason for that little introduction is because unity is the main theme in our passage today. The main burden of the Lord Jesus when he prayed for you and me. So let's read the passage, John chapter 17. We're breaking into the prayer because, of course, over the last couple of weeks, we've already been looking at the first part of this prayer. We're breaking in now at verse 20. Verse 20. In the verses which went before that we looked at last week, um, we were um, thinking about the Lord praying for his disciples. But now in verse 20, he says, My prayer is not for them alone. I pray also for those who will believe in me through their message, that all of them may be one, Father, just as you are in me and I am in you. May they also be in us So that's our passage. Back to my earlier questions. What is unity? How can we achieve it? What's the purpose of unity? And why should we seek after it? As I've uh, inferred or said, uh, there are many different ways that people have tried to answer questions like these. but it's only God's perspective that counts, isn't it? So I'd like to try first to answer the questions based just on the scriptures that we've, that we've, that we've just read. But um, I'd also like to look at some of the practicalities, what, what, it, what it really means for us today. But the first obvious thing to note as we read through this and what we were looking at last week is the importance of unity. Last week, as I said, we were looking at what Jesus was praying for the first disciples. And you might think that having been taught by the Lord directly and with their shared experiences with the Lord and a and small number of them, that unity wouldn't be a problem. But Jesus knew that even for them, their unity would always be under attack from the evil one. And so, as we read last week, verse 11, he prayed that they may be one as we are one. Now in verse 20, Jesus expands that prayer to every other believer. Down through the centuries, right to the current day and beyond where we are as well, to the many more who may be to follow, millions and millions of believers. He prayed that all of them may be one. think we can see four aspects of unity in what the Lord Jesus prayed for. He gives us the pattern for unity, the basis of unity. I'm going to call this next one, uh, and apologies if you think I'm making it sound too fancy, the tactical purpose of unity. And I'm calling it that one, that, that one Like that, because I want to differentiate it from the fourth one, which I'm going to say is the strategic outcome of unity. Okay, so pattern, basis, tactical purpose, and strategic outcome. Let me try and explain what I mean by each of them. Let's start with the pattern of unity. In other words, what model do we compare it with? The pattern is based on the perfect relationship within the Godhead. That's what Jesus said, isn't it? Specifically, uh, in verse 21, it's based on the oneness that exists between the Father and the Son. In verse 21, we read, Jesus prayed, that all of them may be one, Father, just as you are in me and I am in you. You know, the word, the Greek word, um, translated in verse 21 as just as that all of them may be one father just as you are in me and i am in you it doesn't just mean similar it's stronger than that it means to the same degree in verse 23 he prayed that we would be brought to complete unity so that's a unity that's complete and it's a unity that's to the same degree as the unity of the Godhead. That sounds like an impossible standard, doesn't it? Of course, there is a sense in which we are already completely united um, with every believer like that. Like, uh, like I, I, I said in, in, in our um, opening prayer, as it says in Galatians 3 verse 28, we are all one in Christ. But I don't think that's what Jesus was praying for um, in in this prayer. He's praying that despite all our imperfections, our unity in practice should reflect as much as possible the perfect unity of God. And that's the incredibly high standard that we're aiming for. How can we achieve that well you might have noticed that there's no tips on decision making there's no appeals for subjection there's no rules and procedures here to follow as a basis for unity what we're given what the lord jesus prayed for what makes a difference more than anything else is what we were looking at a few weeks ago in chapter 15 and it's what he repeats here in verse 21 and verse 23 and verse 26. The pattern for unity is the unity of the Godhead and the basis for unity is our abiding relationship with God, abiding in the Father and the Son. In simple terms, it's being close to God. It's about our love for God. It's about our priorities. It's our willingness to follow the Lord Jesus' teachings and, and, and so on. I want to stress here that the evidence of our closeness to God is most of all in our character. It's not our knowledge of theology or ancient Greek and Hebrew or interpretations of obscure scriptures and things like that. In fact, it's often what people think they know about God and all of that that causes the divisions. We need to know about God, of course, if we want to know God. But knowledge isn't the defining quality. That's not what shows our closeness to God. It's our character, isn't it? such as we see in the fruit of the Spirit in Galatians 5. And the closer we truly are to God in heaven, the easier it will be to have unity with each other down here. Think of it like this. It's just a little illustration, and I don't know whether it will help or not. Maybe it will make things sound more complicated. But think of a triangle, okay? So it's a triangle like this, yeah? With a wide base, and the point, the top, you see that is pointing up to God in heaven. So that represents our closeness to God in heaven. The nearer we get to God in terms of our closeness, the nearer we get to each other as we go, as we go up. So the, the, the closer we are to God, the closer we become to one another. And therefore, despite differences of opinion and approach and different interests, and despite all our natural individual diversity, the more united we will be. So that's the pattern and the, per- and the-, and the basis of unity. What about the purpose of unity, the third one? What's the purpose of unity? I guess we could just say that it's what God wants. And that's true. Or um, we could refer to that verse in Ecclesiastes again and we could say, well, it's more productive if we get along together. It's teamwork. It's useful. And that's true. Or we could go to Psalm 133 and we could say, well, it's something to enjoy. It, uh, Psalm 133, a um, verse often quoted, how good and pleasant it is when God's people live together in unity all three of those are true but jesus prayed for a very specific objective i'm going to call it a tactical objective as far as the great commission is concerned Um, verse 21 again the end part may they also be in us so that the world may believe that you have sent me the end of verse 23 then the world will know that you sent me and have loved them even as you have loved me unity is evangelistic if christians are united then unbelievers can see that we truly have something special that our lives have been transformed that fundamentally there is one way and one truth and one savior and 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 that's the one who who we're following But you know that, sadly, the history of Christianity has been filled with disunity, hasn't it? In all sorts of ways, from, at one extreme, violent persecution of different groups of Christians by other Christians, um, to the differences in doctrine between denominations that we see um, today, to the disputes between individuals in separate churches. So if unity is evangelistic, then disunity must at the very least be a hindrance to the gospel. Yeah. And for many, maybe it's a total barrier, something which totally puts them off and makes them um, unlikely ever to believe the message that we preach. Because why should they believe what we say when we can't even agree that is christian's altogether can't even agree on what the message is you can see how that is such a barrier to the gospel so i said that was tactical purpose and that was because i wanted to differentiate it from the from the fourth one the strategic outcome of unity in other words what is the ultimate aim? what is the bigger picture what could possibly be even more important than sharing the gospel and making new believers? Well, the Great Commission is not just about making new believers, is it? It's it's about spiritual growth. And, and we see key aspects of that in, in what the Lord Jesus prayed for in the passage that we've read. We, we've already mentioned the abiding relationship that God wants with us. But um, if you look at verse 26, uh, he talks about his desire for us to know God more and more. Uh, he talks about um, us having the love of God in our hearts and, and for Jesus himself to be in us, which I assume is through the Holy Spirit, the one who produces the spiritual fruit and character qualities that make us more and more Christ-like. So the strategic outcome of the unity of believers is not just that there are more believers. That's important, but I'm calling that the tactical purpose. It's it's on the way to what God really wants. The strategic outcome is that there are more and more Christ-like believers. That ultimately is what God wants. So that's the four aspects of of unity, Um, pattern, basis, evangelical purpose, and the ultimate outcome. And the Lord Jesus prayed that all believers would be brought to complete unity. Is that what we have today? When we consider the many variations in Christian practice and doctrine and different interpretations of Scripture and different priorities and so on, um, has the whole thing been a spectacular failure? Did the Lord pray for something which he knew would never happen? He must have foreseen and known what the landscape of Christian Christianity would look like today. Did he pray for something that he knew was undeliverable? We wouldn't expect that, would we? Or has the, growth, has the growth of the churches and the unity of the church, I mean all Christians, despite human failings and despite some of the differences that I've mentioned, has it actually been a success? At least as much as God ever expected it to be. I suppose it depends on what we actually think unity looks like. Does it mean uniformity? Everyone believing and doing exactly the same thing. Does it mean that people never have differing opinions or priorities? Does it mean saying that you agree even when you don't? And, and if unity could possibly mean any of those things, to what extent? After all, we all think differently to each other about some things, at least, don't we? Does that mean that we don't have unity? It's been said that um, if you had some of the greatest Christians of the last 2000 years all in one church, if you had people like Augustine, who was from Uh, i think fourth or the fifth century and calvin and wesley and spurgeon and amy carmichael and billy graham all in one church (laughs) you know you would struggle to get unanimous agreement on on many things but they would be united in their love for god and united in their desire to follow the lord Jesus. And united, actually, in the fundamentals of the gospel and the Great Commission. We know that their interpretations of scripture and priorities uh, differed quite significantly. And uh, in some cases, their their, their style and and opinions were were very different. Uh, But overall, they were united, weren't they? In the way that the Lord Jesus hoped for. John Scott, you might have heard of him, he's um, a a famous evangelist and teacher um, and book writer from the 20th century. Um, His view was that um, the unity that Jesus prayed for was not uniformity. And I'm sure we'd agree with that, wouldn't we? But what he was praying for um, was not just um, how well we got along together, despite the huge importance of that but when jesus said in verse 20 that he was praying that for all of those future believers he was praying that the churches of each century would be recognizable as followers of the same teachings as the first century churches and of course as you know that is one of the aims of the churches of god isn't it one of the aims of our community of churches, to follow the same teaching as the first century churches. That's how we express our unity with the first disciples, the first churches, and that's how we express our unity um, between the individual churches that make up the fellowship today. But of course, churches are made up of individuals and that unity with the apostolic churches is only possible when we work together reasonably in a spirit of mutual respect and love and tolerance. And that brings me to what I said earlier about the basis of unity and the ultimate aim. It's abiding in Christ. It's becoming more like Christ. And if we all did that, how could we not be united regardless of the things that we think differently about. I'm going to finish, um, because I've probably gone over my time already, uh, with the words of Paul from Philippians 2, because they really touch on several of the points that we thought about today. How our relationship with God and our relationships with each other are vital to our unity. The unity that's so important to the gospel message. The unity that's so key to our enjoyment of Christian service. And the unity that the Lord Jesus cared about so much that it's what he prayed for in his last prayer with his disciples before he went to the cross. So let me just finish just by reading the first five verses of Philippians chapter 2. Value others above yourselves, not looking to your own interest, but each of you to the interests of the others. In your relationships with one another, have the same mindset as Christ Jesus.